Not two decades ago, the city of Medellin, Colombia, was considered the most dangerous city in the world. Colombia, the country, had its own reputation as the murder capital of the world. So with a reputation like that, why would anyone consider exploring Colombia by motorcycle? Well, since that dark period in Colombia's history, not 20 years ago, quite a lot has changed and some has not, which gives you two great reasons to consider Colombia. Pablo Escobar, the world's richest criminal, which I'm sure you've heard of or maybe saw a Netflix documentary about, once the king of Medellin is gone, he's dead. And so is his Medellin drug cartel and all the atrocities associated with what he was doing. But because of those years of trouble and that scary reputation, that's tough to kick. So Colombia has remained relatively unexplored, or maybe I should say relatively uninvaded by modern tourists. And that is another great reason to consider riding Colombia. You know, there's a saying that goes kind of like this. If you want the best Caribbean beaches, go to the Bahamas. If you want the best Amazon, go to Peru. If you want the most amazing Andes, go to Brazil. But if you want them all in one place, go to Colombia. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Payton. Bill Bergoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Jarvis. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Oh. I'm Marissa Notier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. Jeff Kramer is originally from Colorado. He's an accomplished professional photographer. His work has appeared in National Geographic, on Discovery Channel, Wired Magazine, and loads more. He specializes in gigapixel photography, super high-resolution photographs. Jeff has explored and photographed extensively in the Amazon jungle. He's even helped discover several new species. He's worked as an expedition guide, but he's also a rider that has fallen in love with Colombia. And he's fallen in love with it so hard that he started a business in Medellin, Colombia, and he now lives there full time. Alan Churchill is Jeff's friend and collaborator. Alan is from Florida, still lives in Florida, but he spends as much time as he can in Colombia exploring by motorcycle. This is Jeff and Alan in Colombia. My name is Jeff Kramer. I'm originally from Pueblo, Colorado. I now live in Medellin, Colombia, and I own a motorcycle rental and tourism company. My name is Alan Churchill. I'm from uh, Florida, USA, and uh, I'm a retired government worker. Jeff, Alan, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. How do you run a company in Colombia when you're a foreigner? Does that work? It does work. And it's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. There's a lot of paperwork involved. But if you're driven, it's something that you're able to do. Uh, yeah, this is Alan speaking. Uh, by far, uh, Colombia is my most favorite Latin country. Uh, the people here are the friendliest in Latin America. And the uh, the riding terrain here uh, is world-class. The, the actual variety of what they have here. Um, you know, from deserts to coastal beaches to incredible mountains to uh, a, a canyon, I think that's deeper, deeper than the Grand Canyon that you can actually ride your motorcycle down into and out the other side. Uh, it's pretty spectacular. 
Jeff, you have you have quite a background here um, in in this area in South America. How do you how did you start out in South America? What got you there? Well, that's a good question. Believe it or not, I was just a backpacker years and years ago. I just wanted to. I I had basically called a gap year, and I wanted to leave home and go travel around. And I started in Belize, Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua, all over the place. I lived in. Costa Rica for a while. And then I finally made it down to Peru. And, uh, you know, one year turned into almost 17. So I lived in Peru for 13 years. And after that, I've been in Colombia, I think almost five years now. Now, if I remember correctly, you didn't actually start riding a motorcycle until what, Colombia? Right. I started getting into motorcycles probably a good 10, 12 years ago. Uh, my parents wouldn't let me ride a motorcycle when I was back in the States. And that's probably was a really good idea. But, uh, you know, now I'm older and a little bit calmer and, uh, yeah, I love riding motorcycles through Colombia. It's an incredibly beautiful country. I like the way you said a little bit calmer. (laughs) You're you're not jumping too far into that. (laughs) Alan, how how about you? When did you get on the bike? I got on the bike in 2009. Uh, before that, I, I was scared of motorcycles. I'd seen a lot of accidents and you couldn't have gotten me on a motorcycle, but one day I bought a, a larger CC scooter that required a motorcycle course and I took it and, and, and I learned so much. And it's like, you know, there's reasons why a lot of these guys are, are crashing because they're not obeying the, the rules. There's some fundamentals here that you, that you must obey kind of like flying an airplane. If you violate the fundamentals, things are going to go really bad. And, and so anyway, I, I got the confidence that uh, it wasn't as dangerous as I thought it was. And so uh, uh, I gave it a try. And, and then I just kind of moved my way up in the size of the bikes that I bought. I bought a 200cc and then I bought a 650 and then I bought a, a Honda Africa Twin. Um, but uh, I'm kind of in love with the, with the lightweight bikes, especially here for Colombia now. That's a very pragmatic uh, approach for that, or, or uh, um, at least a justification, I guess, <laughs> one way or the other in, in coming to riding a motorcycle. But it's interesting that both of you came from a background of um, sort of not riding to getting switched over, not just to riding, but you guys are in love with riding. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an adventure uh, and it can take on so many forms, you know, like back in the States, when I f- was first getting started, I was into motorcycle camping, you know, packing all the gear on the back of the motorcycle so that you could go out in the mountains for, uh, you know, several days without going to the store and, you know, tents and sleeping bags and cooking gear and stuff like that. And it became a real adventure for me. And then uh, Columbia, you know, kind of was like adventure on steroids. Alan, you mentioned that you're a government or ex-government employee. What did you do for the government? Um, a variety of things. Um, some of the details I don't usually talk about a whole lot. Well, that was all the details. I, I didn't hear. <laughs> I didn't hear anything there. So this is um, this is something that uh, I, I, I want to pry here. Uh, yeah, I, I I understand that. Um, I worked for a, a, a government agency uh, out of Florida, and. Um, yeah, I, I, a lot of the details I, I don't uh, talk about a lot and uh, would rather not hear. Oh, that, that's interesting. That makes you even more interesting. Now, now Jeff, I, I know that you, um, you have, have been into photography. That's probably a very mild way of saying it. Can you talk about that? Sure. I, years ago, back home, I started off in photography and I had an interest in astrophotography, which is taking pictures of planets and stars and stuff like that. And, uh, it turned out to be a little bit harder than I thought, more difficult. No. So I, I just started learning more and more and more about photography. And then, you know, I turned my cameras from the sky and started taking photos of subjects like terrestrial subjects. And then I got good and I thought I could go pro and uh, I started working in Peru. I was finally able to work in the Peruvian Amazon as a photographer. And I've shot for National Geographic, Discovery Channel, BBC, all sorts of different places. And it was an incredible experience. Very, very awesome experience. And you've taken some real high-definition photos? Yeah, correct. I'm, uh, my, my expertise really is in uh, high-resolution photography, or we call it gigapixel photography. And what that is, is you can use, uh, you can take your camera and set it onto a robotic camera mount 
And then that camera mount will scan through and take a series of photographs at a high magnification. And then you use computer software to stitch those all together. And it makes an extremely high resolution image. So some of the photos that I took were 16,000 megapixels, 22,000 megapixels. And uh, you can zoom into the image and see everything in extreme high resolution detail. You can also print the pictures out to, you know, 30, 40 meters in length and still retain full detail and full resolution. You got a book printed out of this? Well, in the high resolution gigapixel stuff, I was in the largest atlas ever published that goes for $100,000 a copy. And it's, uh, I forget how big it is, but it's huge. So I've been in there. A lot of the pictures are on the internet for people to zoom in and out and explore Machu Picchu. You can explore Quito, Ecuador and explore a lot of different places that I've been to. And yeah, I mean, it's not practical to print out, but it's, it's really neat when you can go in and see it on the internet and zoom in and, and all that stuff and explore the image really. I've never even heard of this, this Atlas and I've certainly never seen a copy. Could, could you send me one of those copies? Uh, if, if <laughs> send you the if, link to it, yeah, yeah. I'll send you a link. If, if you got a hundred thousand dollars, yeah, I'd be more than happy to exactly. send you a copy. You, you know, what's funny is when you just said that about zooming into the photos, I, I realized that I remember, and it was some years back now, and it probably was a project that you were involved with where there was a website that, that I came across somehow through a link from something else. And it, that was what it was. It was it was these photos that you could zoom into. And I remember spending a lot of time. I don't remember exactly what I looked at at the time because it was quite a while ago. But you could zoom right in. And this is sort of before the internet became so advanced as it is now with the amount that we can download and such. So you were using a, just a website, I think, and zooming into the photos. Just incredible stuff. Yeah, it's a website where you can zoom in. And what it is, the file size, this is technical, but the file size, let's say it's, uh, you know, maybe 50 gigabytes of information, right? So you don't want to load all that onto your computer. So what there's another piece of software that divides it up into a series of small uh, images that are measured in kilobytes. So when you zoom in, your computer is only loading up that one tile of the image that's very quick to load up. So as you move through the photo, it only loads up what needs to be loaded up. And, uh, that's how it's able to do that. Oh, that's incredible. And it's it's interesting to think that, now, how many years ago was that? More than 10? Uh, the Machu Picchu photo, I think I did in 2012. I did the Ecuador photo a few years after that. So even with our, our, our technology advancing so fast now, we still don't have the, the internet ability or the, or the computer power to really process images that big. You still need that that extra step in there to help process them. Right. Yeah. It's a lot of information to uh, process on the computer. It takes, sometimes it'll take 24 hours to stitch the image. You also, in, in your travels as a photographer, you discovered new species. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we discovered at least four new species, I believe. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in the Amazon jungle where I worked. I worked in a place in southeastern Peru called Madre de Dios in the Amazon and, uh, you know, it's not very explored, but if you're going out there, the right equipment, there's all sorts of stuff you can find. Some of the things we discovered in the Amazon was a spider that draws a picture of itself in its web using leaf debris, which is kind of interesting. So it'll go down to the ground, it'll pick up little leaves, it'll climb back up to its web and start placing them in there. It'll make a, just a larger image of itself. You can see the legs and the, the head of the spider. And that's really interesting. That's bizarre. Now, is that supposed to be some sort of defense mechanism or something? Yeah, we think it's a defense mechanism to defend against uh, dragonflies, basically types of dragonflies that will go up to the web and try to pick it out of its web. But when the dragonflies see that great big giant spider that's actually just leaves, it scares them away and they have a higher probability of survival and not getting eaten. That's amazing. And then what is it? You're part of a group there that, that's exploring and looking for new species at the time? Well, I did a lot of different things. Uh, I worked for a company out there called Rainforest Expeditions, and we did a lot of uh, science outreach. And what we would do is invite reporters down and biologists and entomologists who study insects. We'd all go out into the jungle and see what we could find. And we'd all be, we would have all the good high-end gear 
and we'd be able to take amazing photos and then we'd research everything and see what we got. And if it was something interesting, we'd write up a story about it. So when you find a new species, do you, do you get to name it? Uh, we haven't named the species yet. I think there's a lot of stuff you have to go through to do that. So we haven't named any of them, but, uh, we've done a lot of research and, you know, according to the entomologists and biologists I've worked with, yeah, some of these are new species. Oh, that's incredible. And you guys mentioned that you, you have this business in Columbia. Alan, why Columbia? Um, well, you know, there was sort of, there's sort of a mystique to Columbia because of, uh, because of its history. Um, and, uh, it, not pe- not a lot of people know very much about it. Um, and so I was reading blogs about people who, you know, used to travel the Americas on motorcycle down through Central America, you know, pretty much same, same one country to the other few days in this country, few days in that country. And time after time, uh, bloggers would say, and then they got to Colombia and they plan to, tra- you know, uh, uh, transit the country in, you know, four or five days. But there's something so special about Colombia. They ended up staying there three weeks or a month and then continuing on in their trip. And then they'd make it to all the way to the tip of South America. And then they'd come back to Colombia because there was something special here. And so, um, and so that really kind of intrigued me. And so I came, I, I came here and uh, started, started riding and um, I, it's different. I used to ride in Costa Rica as well. And, uh, but this place is so massive. It's big, it's as big as California and Texas combined. It's so massive. And so much of it is off the beaten path where foreigners have never even been. They, they haven't, they've never spoken to a foreigner before. And, um, it's just so, it's so fascinating, uh, to me, unlike some of the, some of the other countries that I've been in. Well, I think for a lot of people, until recently, now I know this image is changing recently, but a lot of people think of drug lords. They think of of indiscriminate uh, murders, Pablo Escobar, um, FARC gorillas. They think of those sorts of things. Yeah, and that's one of the things that that's kept uh, that's kept the the the, the average uh, Western tourist out of here, um, and. Um, in some ways, uh, it's unspoiled because the, the you know the, the the Western tourist hasn't come in here and put up McDonald's on every corner and stuff like that. Um, you know, Pablo Escobar died more than twenty years ago, but people still think of it as uh, you know this uh, narco infested country that you know you could get kidnapped on any corner, and that's just not the reality anymore. It's changed completely from that. Yes. I, I mean, there are certain pockets deep, deep into the jungle where uh, cocaine cultivation is going on and there is some of that stuff going on, but it, it's really not suitable for motorcycling and we stay out of there. Uh, so, but for the most part, uh, unless you're going to look for a cocaine plantation, uh, you're just not going to run into that kind of stuff. So, so it's it's more uh, a distance, obviously, is dropped off incredibly but the U.S. government still has a, a like a level three, uh, I think, uh, travel advisory on at least right now they do uh, as we're speaking. That's been on there for years. It was on there back in 2018 when I first came, and uh, since then uh, I've ridden a lot of Colombia and haven't had any problems. I've heard this from other riders who go through it. As a matter of fact, I don't, I don't think I can remember in late, anyway, uh, a bad story about traveling through anything other than what you would normally get anywhere else, you know, like if you if you have some petty thing happen. But from what I understand and from what you guys have, have said, it's a very safe place to be if you stay within the confines of the, the sort of safe area. Yeah, that's correct. If you read Lonely Planet's book, they pretty much say that um, you know, anything that's in their book has been, is in a safe zone, uh, feel free to travel, uh, and don't worry about it. If it's not in their book, then, eh, well, consider it, uh, carefully before you, before you go down into the Amazon or whatever you're thinking about doing. So what are the areas that you avoid then? Well, I think that's about as good a time as any to stop for just a second. I've got a couple of things to tell you about, but stay with us. We got a lot more fun coming up. Well, it's all happening again this year. Overland Expo West is on in Flagstaff, Arizona, this May 20th to 22nd, um, this year, 2022, at the Fort Tuthill County Park. 
They have, well, they say the greatest collection of overland adventure companies in the world. 300 vendors, 300 gear vendors in one spot. There's so much going on here. I can't give you everything that's happening, but this is the place to go for an overland event for the year. If I were you, I would set this date on your calendar. And by, by the way, if you want tickets, you got, you got to go online. I'm going to give you the website in a minute, but it's May 20th to 22nd this year. You can go, you can park your bike, you can camp for the weekend. You can take all kinds of things that, that are happening here. You can walk around, and talk to the vendors. You can buy equipment for your bike. You can actually get things installed on your bike there. You can learn how to ride better. You can learn skills. Hey, and you know who's doing that is, is Bill Dragoo, who you've heard here on Adventure Rider Radio. He's doing the, the motorcycle stuff at Overland Expo. They've got authors, filmmakers, travelers um, doing workshops and classes, sharing their stories of, of riding on the road. Um, you, you get a lot of one-on-one. I mean, this is total immersion here. You're, you're around a whole bunch of other overlanders. Now, your tickets have to be purchased online at overlandexpo.com. They've got to be done in advance. So make sure you go there because there's a bunch of different ways to experience a show. There's so much going on there that you sort of want to pick and choose what you want to do. You can get a day pass, a weekend pass, a, a moto weekend pass with camping. They actually have specific motorcycle things, many specific motorcycle things, but including a moto party dinner. So um, go to the website, have a look at what they've got. It's overlandexpo.com. And this is the, the May 20th to 22nd. Mark it on your calendar. You've got to get to an Overland event this year. Overlandexpo.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Moto Camp Nerd. It's a motorcycle camping store. Actually, they call it the motorcycle camping store because they say it's the only one of its kind, and I haven't come across this either. Moto Camp Nerd. It's the brainchild of Ben and Mary Williams from Trinity, North Carolina. And what they have here is a a store that focuses 100% on motorcycle camping, supplying us riders with ride-quality camping gear. And guess what? They just opened a new store in Archdale, North Carolina, near Trinity. This would make a good ride destination you know, on your route or maybe just a place to go to. Anyway, they, they, they do this, um, this, this supplying us with gear by, by stocking the gear. They don't do drop shipping. They've got gear that suits motorcycle riding. So they choose gear that packs small and works well for us riders. They're authorized dealers for brands like Nemo, Big Agnes, Sea to Summit, and Ben & Mary, the owners, they're, they're motorcycle campers themselves. So you're, when you're dealing with Moto Camp Nerd, you're dealing with riders that care very much about what they're doing, a husband and wife team. You know, this could solve a lot of dilemmas on deciding on gear because we hear questions like this all the time. You know, and I'm sure you have too. You, which tent is best suited for motorcycle camping? Which sleeping bag is? Well, here you've got people who've tried it and specialized, make it their, their vocation to understand what is needed for motorcycle camping gear and supplying you with that gear. Moto campnerd.com is a website. You're only going to find gear here that suits motorcycle camping and Ben and Mary there to help with your questions. So if you have a question, can't decide, just shoot them an email and they said they're happy to help sort you out. motocampnerd.com and anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. So what are the areas that you avoid then? Uh, Pretty much the low-lying jungle. Uh, Where where would that be? Yeah, if you... you if you go into the Amazon jungle way deep into these jungly areas and stuff like that, maybe, you know, yeah, you might find some, but yeah, off into really. the, into the Eastern uh, Columbia and the Amazon basin where it gets flat um, and, and, and very, very dense. Uh, and the riding out there isn't any very interesting anyway. Uh, we just don't go out in there. Um, and, you know, the locals all know uh, where that is and, it's just something that you stay away from, sort of like the bad neighborhoods of any big city. Right. No, no different than that. Then it, it's pretty safe everywhere you're going as, as far as where most motorcyclists are going. Exactly. You guys said um, you, you have a book out and you said in the, in the book something about if you want the best uh, beaches in the Caribbean. Do, do you know the line I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Can you mm-hmm. say that? Yeah, I forget the exact quote, but it's something like, if you want the best of the Andes, then go to Peru. If you want the best of Caribbean beaches, then go to the Bahamas. And if you want the best of the Amazon jungle, go to Brazil. But if you want to get it all in one place, Colombia is the place. It's got the beaches. It's got the Amazon jungle. It's got uh, it's got the Andes mountains that, you know, a lot of people don't know that the Andes mountain is this chain of mountains through South America. But once it gets into Colombia, it splits into three, like a trident fork. And there's three Andes ranges of mountains, each of which has its own different characteristics. And what sort of, what size are we talking about here with mountains? 
Oh, I think 15, is 15,000 the, the largest? Higher uh, than that. 15, 16,000, I believe. Jeff's going to check it really quickly on his Google, but yeah, about 15, 16. Um, there's, and I never, never realized this either, but we have glaciers here in Colombia. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, there's glaciers up high that are, you know, that are, are moving like you would see in, you know, in, in, in Antarctica or something. There are, there are glaciers up, up there, up high. I believe they call them equatorial glaciers, uh, snow, snow-capped mountains with real glaciers and stuff. And, uh, you know, all this in one country. It's pretty awesome. They also have uh, strato volcanoes out here, extremely high snow-capped volcanoes such as Nevado Ruiz Volcano. But I just looked it up, and the tallest mountain in Colombia is Pico Cristobal Colón, and that's 18,800 feet or 5,730 meters. So there are huge Andes mountains out here. You know, I was just talking to Alan in the morning. Uh, we went out for coffee before the interview, and I live out in the country about 45 minutes outside of Medellin, in the mountains, actually, and I was driving into Medellin, and the, the views are absolutely beautiful with clouds and fog rolling through the forest and stuff like that and mountains and green. And I told Alan in the morning, I said, you know what? I said, I love it here. I love it. I have no problems. And, you know, I mean, I really don't have any complaints, truthfully. And I love it to death out here. I love it. I love riding here. I love living here. Every morning when I get up and look out the window, I see beautiful mountains and beautiful greenery and birds everywhere. And it's, I love it to death. So I couldn't even tell you something that I don't like. Wow. That's amazing. It, it does sound spectacular. Now, are, do you, are you guys permanent residents there? This is Alan. I'm not, I come and I go. Jeff is. Yeah. I'm a permanent resident. So you, you, you have all the um, abilities that anyone else does who was born there. Not exactly. I don't think that I can vote and stuff like that, but but I can definitely pay taxes. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's something they're always good at getting. No matter where you go, they're always good at, uh, at, at collecting the taxes. So yeah. um, why did why did you choose Medellin to live in, or live near, or have your have your business from? Years ago, I used to live in Cali, Colombia, and I always had a great time there. I loved it. But I used to come up to Medellin just to hang out and have little vacations and stuff like that. And Medellin's beautiful. It's a beautiful city. It's in a, it's in a valley, an and high Andean valley. It's beautiful, and the people are very nice here. They're they're nice all over Colombia, but here in the state of Antioquia, we have people that are called Pisces, and Paisa are kind of Andean campesinos or country people, I guess you could call it, and they have their own little culture. But one of the things that's part of that culture is just being friendly and smiling all the time and being nice to each other. And that's something that drew me to this area as well, besides just the natural beauty, you know, is the nice people. Why is it that they're nice? I mean, I, I hear this a lot. You know, that's a good question. Maybe Alan might have a little bit of input on that. I'm not totally sure, but they are very, very nice people. What, what do you think, Alan? I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a mystery to me. Uh, after all the people have been through here uh, and everything, I would have expected the exact opposite. But um, I've been here and I've been lost and people could see it on my face like he doesn't know exactly where he's going. And they'll walk me three blocks to close to where I'm going and then point to the place. And I'm just like, wow, that's way, way out of their way to do that to a stranger. Um, I don't have an answer for that, but I, I know that it's true. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's exceptional for, you know, for Latin America and for a lot of the rest of the world too, to have some people that are so friendly to, to foreigners. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's strange, but okay. Let's talk a little bit about the country itself. What is there to see there as far as like from a motorcyclist perspective? Oh boy. Wow. Um, if you want to ride to the, if you want to ride up to the North coast and you you really like the beaches and the sun, you can do that. If you like, uh, if you like, um, the twists and the turns and the, and the cooler weather up in the mountains, you've got that. If you, if you're ready to get off the motorcycle and get, go exploring, you know, some caves, uh, Jeff was up in a, in a place that had a, a cave 
the sinkhole was like 150 meters deep. And then at the bottom of the sinkhole was a cave that went way back in. Back in this cave is a species of bird that uh, operates in the dark like bats do and uses a sonar for finding insects to eat. And um, and so kind of weird stuff like that. Uh, if you like hiking, waterfalls, you know, swimming in, uh, you know, waterfall pools and stuff like that along your way, there's just tons of that going on. And you, you don't exactly have a tough climate to live with either. Um, down in, in the coastal areas, it's it's brutally hot. Uh, but up here in the mountains where the riding is the best, you know, the weather is determined by the altitude. Uh, if you go way up at, you know, 13,000 feet, you know, it's quite chilly. But down here around five to seven, 8,000 feet, not bad at all. You know, you, you've got your motorcycle gear, you cut a couple of layers and it works out pretty well. So if somebody comes and they want to ride there, let's say, let's say they're coming from North America, they've, they've got the Darien Gap to deal with, to begin with. What do you recommend for that? You know, you're talking about somebody who's riding through yeah. Central America. Exactly. I'm talking about somebody who's riding from North America, going down to South America, maybe on their way to Ushuaia, but, but you're, you're convincing me very quickly to spend a lot of time in Colombia exploring there. What about the Darien? The Darien, uh, the, the Darien is a dense jungle. Uh, it is full of uh, those bad groups that you talked about. Um, and there's only two ways in. There is by boat or by plane. There is no road that you can continue on south into, into Colombia. It doesn't exist. Um, so there's a lot written about, you know, how to ship your bike on the internet, whether it be by air or by boat, which one's going to be cheaper and more efficient and so forth. Um, that's pretty much what it is, the Darien. So, um, riding through, what sort of things do you need to know entering the country with your own motorcycle? Um, when you come in, uh, you're only going to have 90 days to have your motorcycle in country. They're going to give you uh, basically a temporary import permit. It gives you, it gives you 90 days and then they expect the motorcycle to go out. Um, it's pretty straightforward uh, when, when, you, when you do the rest of your entry paperwork uh, coming in. Well, what do you have to do when you, other than the temporary import permit, the tip, when you come into the country as far as your bike goes? Is it, is it pretty straightforward then? I mean, technically it's straightforward, but there's just a lot of red tape you have to deal with. And, uh, you know, if you don't speak Spanish and stuff like that, it can be tough. What about insurance? Insurance. Yeah. You can buy insurance for your bike. That's called SOAP. And it's in Spanish. That means, uh, seguros obligatorio de accidentes de transito. That means it's, uh, obligatory accident insurance. So you can go pick that up for your bike. And, uh, it's fairly cheap. Yeah, it's cheap. It's easy to do. Now you could also buy a bike. Maybe they want to start their trip there. You've talked before about buying a bike there. How, how does that work? Yeah. Buying a bike here, uh, is pretty straightforward. You can go down to any dealership or you can find, you know, a private seller. And all you really have to do is register for something called the RUNT. And that's the Registro Nacional de Transito. And once you're in there, then you're legally able to buy a motorcycle in Colombia. You can just go down there and buy it. They'll process the paperwork and have it ready for you in about five days. And if you're talking about a de the dealership uh, purchase is far easier than, you know, finding something on the internet or some classified ad and then negotiating with the seller. And then there's some strange laws about, well, if he's got any outstanding traffic tickets that he hasn't paid, well, then whoever is the title holder is responsible for those. And that part of it kind of gets complicated unless you've got a Colombian friend that's helping you or you're fluent in Spanish. Um, but as far as buying a, a new bike at the dealership, pretty easy, kind of like the States. Yeah, you, you'd need Spanish, wouldn't you? Because you, you could end up getting really stuck that way. Uh, there's too much communication going to, to purchase a bike privately. Um, but uh, as you mentioned, the dealership, uh, that, that sounds like a great idea. Now, what about selling it afterwards? If you just came to buy your bike, ride it there, and then sell it, is it fairly easy to do? I mean, technically, it's easy to do. But, you know, in practice, it can be difficult because you need to put it onto the internet and advertise it. You need to find a buyer you need to go through this whole entire process again. And, uh, you know, that's why I recommend people rent. A lot of people have a dream. They want to come down. They want to just do this huge tour through South America. Boom. They're going to buy a bike. They're going to do this. But you know what I always tell people is why don't you come down, 
why don't you try riding around first, see how you feel before you want to go all in and buy your own bike because it, it can be complicated. Yeah, you have a time for that, don't you? Don't you say after you're saying if somebody has only, I forget what the time was that you were saying, but up to a certain period of time, you're recommending that it makes more sense, even financially, to just rent the bike after that, then you could probably consider buying. Yeah, basically the timeline on that is if you're going to be in South America for months at a time, it makes sense for you to buy a bike. But the thing about South America is you can't buy a bike in Colombia and sell it in Argentina. You can't buy a bike in Ecuador and sell it in Peru. They've got pretty strict laws that prevent people from doing that. So if you buy the bike in Colombia and you want to travel the continent, you got to come back to Colombia to sell it. Mm-hmm. One Another one of those impediments to buying your own bike and just easily disposing of it. What about if you buy the bike in Colombia and then, then you're trying to cross the border to go elsewhere? Uh, d- does that work out okay? Yeah, that works out fine because the bike's registered in your name um, and you transit borders, just like if you were bringing your bike in from the straight states, it's registered to you and you have every right to cross borders with it. But you do need a Colombian address though. So you've sort of got to get with somebody, make a connection to get the bike to begin with. Yeah, that's correct. Right. And is that fairly easy to do? Um, I think so. I mean, your hotel has an address. Just, they just need a Colombian address. And you can use uh, that, the hotel address. Sure, sure. That seems pretty straightforward then. It's, it's straightforward in theory, but in practice, it can get a little complicated. Yeah, it's a five. It, in the States, it, it could be a one-day process or two maybe, but down here is probably more like a five. At least. What's it like to ride the roads in Colombia? Mm. Well, um, it's a lot of fun. You just have to remember that um, they don't always respect that center line and um, take your cor- corners kind of wide. Avoid that center line uh, and be prepared for maybe a landslide that's blocking the road between here and where you want to go. And now you've got to reroute yourself around and it's going to take an extra four hours out of your day that you hadn't planned. So, Alan, how do you adjust your, your riding from being in Florida to being in Columbia? Oh, well, Florida's all flat, straight, 90 degree, you know, turns on our roads. Maybe that was a bad example. (laughs) Yeah. But something like that, you know. Yeah. But so like say from the mountain states uh, to down here, um, basically you just got to remember big trucks are, are, they're the biggest and they, they own the road uh, and they cross the center line in these big turns. uh, And so give lots of room in blind corners. Um, And um you know, other than that, uh, like I talked about with, you know, road closures and stuff like that, uh, it's pretty much the same. They drive on the right side of the road here. Um, and, you know, they've got speed limits that are sometimes enforced and so forth. And they also have lane splitting. Lane splitting is different. Yes. Um, you can do lane splitting here, uh, which for the average North American rider, it's, uh, it's a new concept. Um, but it's very, very efficient. And everybody, all the people in the cars and trucks, they're completely okay with you passing them and getting to the front of the line at the red light. And you're the first to go. In North America, people get enraged oh, about yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Uh, even places, if it's, it's allowed. Uh, but yeah, people get very, very upset. Well, they think you're cheating is what it is. So it's nice that, mm-hmm. that there it's just expected. That's what you do. And, and, and really what the, the big thing with this is you're clearing traffic. You're, you're making space for more cars. Yeah, exactly. And everybody in the car knows that if you're first in line, you're going to leave them in the dust anyway, and you're not going to be slowing them down in the future. So it's perfectly fine with them. What about the road conditions themselves? Now, you, you mentioned that, okay, they're driving across the center line. You certainly got to be careful in blind corners. Anything could be there. But what about the roads themselves, the surfaces? It, it all depends on where you are. Um, there are some brand new roads in Colombia that uh, are equal to anything you'd find in North America as far as pavement and, um, you know, sh- shoulders to pull off on and so forth. Um, but there's a huge percentage of the roads in Colombia that, that are that are unpaved and off in the backcountry on, on the dirt. Uh, then you do have your secondary paved roads that don't get a whole lot of attention. Um, maybe they're not highly traveled roads. And, and you got to watch out for, you know, for potholes and um, and places where the, the earth has shifted and, uh, and there's cracks and stuff in, in the pavement that has moved. And rather than fixing all that, well, they just put up a sign that says, you know, uh, geologically unstable zone ahead. And that means slow down and 
make your way through it. Is there always a sign? Uh, normally on pavement, there is, uh, in the, in the way back country, when you get off, off, off the pavement, um, not so much. But that makes perfect adventure motorcycle country then. It, yeah, it surely does. It definitely adds to the adventure. What about speed bumps? They do have them in small towns. Uh, they call them sleeping policemen. Um, and you know, that's just right, right when you usually get into the center of town or at a school zone, they'll put up the speed bumps. Um, and they're usually marked, uh, fairly well, but you gotta be paying attention because sometimes the paint's worn off them and that'll really surprise you. How do you find your way around? Well, um, there are very few paper roadmaps in Colombia, And so there's a variety of online maps um, uh, of which Google uh, is, maps is not my favorite because some, there's some mistakes there that'll send you on a cow pa- into a cow pasture and stuff, but there's some other online, uh, roadmaps that we use and, uh, it gets you where you need to go. And you have enough cell coverage everywhere you go that you can use online maps. Um, in many cases we, we download the portion of the country before we go in there so that we can navigate it. Uh, without cell coverage, but um, you know, some cell companies have more towers in remote areas than others, and uh, we know which which companies those are, and so the coverage is pretty darn good and out in the municipalities. And it's easy to get a SIM card. You can get a SIM card in in any store, and what I recommend is people normally get either Claro or Tigo. Those are some of the main companies out here in Colombia, and then I recommend people use Gaia GPS or Maps Me. And you can download offline map to that, to those programs onto, onto your phone so you can navigate. Going to take just a very quick break. I got a couple of things I want to tell you about, but when we come back, we're going to talk about what to do or what happens in the event of a motorcycle accident. If you go there and you actually get off your bike, well, more if you make a connection with somebody else. Anyway, stay with us. More coming up. Go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. Giant Loop is inspired by years of personal riding experiences and feedback gathered from riders across the globe. They design products for travel, discovery, and exploration. And and they believe that lighter and simpler is better. How we ride as motorcyclists, they feel, shouldn't be dictated by what's strapped to our vehicles. Riding's just plain more fun when unnecessary weight and bulk are removed. I don't think anyone can argue with that. And they focus on what's needed to serve the product's mission. I like this. No no extra straps, no extra buckles, no everything in the kitchen sink designs. Instead, each product is purpose-built to enhance the riding experience for those who want a modular and customizable packing system that's stable, durable, uh, intuitive, and lightweight. So um, discover a whole new world of uh, adventure with intuitive, functional, durable gear that requires little more than sort of plug-and-play set up with it. Go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. The website is giantloopmoto.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. giantloopmoto.com. When it comes to being connected to your bike, your foot pegs are paramount. Obviously, how could you ride without foot pegs? So if they're so important, why do motorcycles come from the factory with such wimpy pegs? Well, it comes down to economics. And to be fair, the average motorcycle that's sold, very few are lucky enough to get a serious rider as its owner, but you are a serious rider and you need serious foot pegs. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs ranging from the extra wide and large ADV1s and ADV2s on down to the core Enduros. Now, these pegs are all made from CAST certified 17.4 stainless steel. They're all built in the USA and they're all warrantied for life. And that warranty ought to give you a hint to the quality. They aren't just another foot peg. They're top of the line pegs, yet affordable for the average rider. The website is imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. If you're, you're bringing your own bike or maybe you've bought a bike, and you're riding one of these roads that we're talking about here and something goes wrong. I'm talking Mm. a crash. So you, so you've, you've hit something, you've hit somebody, somebody's hit you. How does that work? Mm. In Colombia, the bike stays on the ground. You don't pick your bike up. I don't care if it's leaking gasoline all over the pavement. It, you just back away from it. The cars don't move until the police come. And then the insurance company comes and clears and clears the scene. Oh, well, the insurance company actually sent somebody out. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. 
And and what happens with that? I mean, I mean, are there laws that make you guilty just because you're part of the accident or how does that work? It it depends on how everything goes down, you know. So what they do, they'll send out normally the transit police will come out and they'll do an inspection. But like on my bikes, I have accident coverage and they'll actually send out a lawyer on a motorcycle to help you with all that stuff, depending on where you are. Oh, like wow. if you're in if you're in really back country places, that guy isn't going to come out. But, you know, if you're in Medellin, if you're in Bogota, if you're in Cali, some of the other major cities, they'll send out a lawyer on a motorcycle, even dressed up in a suit and tie. <laughs> and uh, he'll get out there and he'll help you out with the whole thing. And he has uh, paperwork that can, can can help you out and all that stuff. So is it handled right then or does it end up going to court like it does, you know, for in North America? No, it's, it's usually handled right then and there unless it's some complicated thing but normally it's just handled right then and there we sign some papers and then we're good and off you go how mm-hmm. how common are crashes with motorcycles there as far as foreigners not the the locals uh very uncommon i would say it's it's not common at all so you keep your wits about you pay attention sort of thing and and you know it's a it's a it's a pretty easy thing to navigate even though the traffic is a little bit crazy Right. If you just pay attention and you drive safely and respectfully and and all that, you're not going to have any trouble out here. And if the bike is stolen, is it the, you know, the same sort of thing? You've got insurance, you're covered. I mean, it's it's not a big deal. I'm, I'm, I'm particularly interested in if you've got a tip, a temporary import permit. Right. If you have a temporary import permit, all that means is you're legally allowed to drive that motorcycle in Colombia for up to six months. If the bike gets completely stolen, your bike from the States or whatever... That's it. It just gets stolen. The only thing that SOAT covers, the SOAT insurance, is transit accidents and medical, you know, emergency medical care. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't cover stolen bikes or anything like that. Yeah, no liability coverage, no stolen, no no theft coverage on the on the mandatory SOAT. That's completely injury insurance. Um, if you want those extra coverages, then you have to seek that out separately from the, from the mandatory insurance. Oh, but you, you can get that. Like if, if I was going to rent a bike, well, if I was going to rent one of your bikes, for instance, uh, I would get coverage for that for theft. It's, it's basically covered. Yeah. Yeah. I think you take the liability, the risk on that. Right. Here's the deal. So when you rent a bike from me, the theft for a motorcycle for one of our bikes is I've never even had it happen, but if it does, I'll take the hit. And I'm willing to take that risk because it's very uncommon having a motorcycle stolen. Hmm. And in case of there's like an accident, you like maybe running a person over or something like that. On the bikes, I have a liability coverage for accidents like that. It will cover third parties. You have medical coverage. There's even a secondary medical insurance through a private company that I provide. The only thing that's not covered is theft, but I pick that up. So you're pretty good. Yeah, you're basically self-insured when it comes right, to Right, I'm theft. self-insured when it comes to theft. What, what does it cost to, to travel around there? So somebody comes in and they want to uh, travel Columbia. What, what's sort of the average cost? Uh, basic rule of thumb is a third of what it would cost you in North America or probably Europe. Same level of service type of thing at a third of the price. In the big cities, the same level of service. Once you get back out into the back country, into, the, into rural Columbia, um, no, no. The hotel service and, 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 and restaurant service, you probably won't, it won't be up to Western standards. Here's a little story that I have that kind of uh, speaks of the service of a hotel in the backcountry. So I think, what would a hotel cost out there? Maybe $15, $20 for a hotel. And then I got a hotel in the backcountry. It was like $25, $30 per night. And it came with a great big jacuzzi in there. And they wanted to charge me $10 to fill up the jacuzzi. And I said, okay, let's do it. Yeah, let's fill it up. I'll pay. I'll jump in there and take a bath after a long ride. So what they did is they these ladies came into the room with five-gallon buckets. And they turned on the hot water in the shower. They started filling up these five-gallon buckets and dumping them into the jacuzzi because it wasn't plumbed in to the hot water system. So sometimes there's little things like that. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say they were going to charge you to put the water in and then they're going to charge you to heat it afterwards, but it's nice <laughs> to know it was hot going in. Yeah. Yeah. What other things are, are incredible uh, about traveling Colombia? Wow. Let me try to think. Well, you know, I, you know, Alan talked about 
the landscape of Colombia that's incredibly beautiful and the variety of scenery. But, you know, it's it's when you get out to the backcountry and you get to meet some of the people out there. It's a really nice experience. Uh, when I drive through places in the backcountry, they're drying coffee along the sides of the roads. And a lot of people are growing coffee out there. And if you want to stop and take a picture or, or check out how they produce coffee, you can just talk, knock on the door and say, hey, how are you? Hey, I saw you trying coffee. Can I take a look? And and they're like, sure, you can come in and they they talk to you. They serve you coffee and everyone's friendly. And that's something I like to do a lot. Well, yeah, it's some of the other thing I might add, too. It's like if you're going to see things out in the backcountry in Colombia that your grandfather probably saw that you don't see in North America anymore. Those things have long disappeared. For example, uh, we, we, we are in this community and we see these mules coming down out of the mountains, dragging, um, dragging uh, maybe 15, 20 foot boards, one on each side of the mule. Now there's a team of eight mules. There's no human being around somebody. There's these mules know the route. They come down out of the mountains and they drag the wood to a certain place and they stop. That's something we probably would have seen in our grandfather's time, you know, drag, dragging this wood to a sawmill. Uh, there's another uh, town out in uh, out in uh, out in this this province where they're still using a water wheel built in 1905 to squeeze the juice out of sugarcane and then turn it into sh- into sugar. A, a, a functioning water wheel from all those years still doing its work. Really interesting stuff. Wow, that's incredible! And some of the architecture is is mind blowing. Yeah, the some of the colonial stuff, you know, from the time when the Spaniards were here. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these little small towns that still retain that uh, Spanish colonial architecture, unchanged, uh, where tourists haven't haven't been or very few have been. Uh, really, really neat. Something that I like about the architecture is that everything's so colorful. A lot of the small towns, they have beautiful balconies on all of the houses and they paint them really bright colors, orange and blue and yellow. And it's really, really pretty. So that's something that's, that's neat to see out there as well. It's not just like brown stucco, you know. Mm-hmm. You guys wrote a book called Jeff and Allen's Guide to Motorcycle Travel in Colombia. Why did you write the book? Well, um, for me... Uh, it was a way to share the, the, the joy and adventure of, of Colombia and mo- most of which uh, people are still, you know, kind of scared of coming here and they don't really know the details on, you know, what it's like to, to motorcycle this country as opposed to any other country. So, you know, there was no other guide to motorcycle travel in Colombia, number one. And number two, just, you know, just to kind of sort of explain the different regions and the, and the good riding that's here and how easy it is to get here uh, and so forth. It was, you know, was one of the goals of the book. We wrote it during COVID when there was nothing else going on anyway. And uh, Jeff was trapped in uh, Colombia during, I'm, I'm sorry, trapped in uh, Peru during the, when, when all the borders closed. And I was back in, uh, in Florida and there wasn't any traveling going on. And uh, we decided, hey, let's write a book on motorcycle travel in Colombia. And we had oodles of time to do it with nothing else to do. And so we we uh, we put it together with, you know, hundreds of, of, of beautifully done uh, color photographs of Colombia uh, that most of which uh, Jeff took himself with his camera. Is, is this the first book you guys did? I think it's the first book for Alan. I wrote a book with my dad years ago about log cabin construction. And then I also wrote a couple books about uh, photography in the Amazon jungle and uh, different wildlife things that we discovered out there. Right. Because well, this book that you've written on motorcycle travel in Colombia is stunning. Uh, I mean, it really took, took me by surprise when I opened it up. It's one of the nicest motorcycle books I've ever seen uh, as far as design wise. And, and the way you've uh, approached it, I'm, I'm gushing here for you, but uh, it's just a, an incredible book. A really, really nice guide. Now you've got in here a whole bunch of uh, itineraries as well, where, where people, if they're wondering about, you know, what to do in Colombia, you've got suggested routes. Do, do they come from tours that you guys do? Yes, these itineraries come from a lot of the tours that we do. And uh, some of the stuff in there, for example, there's a seven-day perfect loop tour that takes people into the coffee region, 
but also some of the jungle regions and then all the way up to the Nevada Ruiz volcano. So the, the tours and the itineraries that we have in the book, they're made for everybody. You know, if you want to see a little bit of the high altitude Paramo, they call it, which is kind of alpine tundra, there's that. If you want to see the jungle, there's that. It's taking you through the coffee region. So we kind of include a variety of terrain and all the different itineraries that are in the book. And the images in here, I mean, just show like just uh, stunning, stunning place to visit, including this one place, Watape. Can you talk about that? Yeah, Watape is a, you see the picture of the rock in the book. It's what they call a monolith. It's, you know, one, I don't know all the technical details or what makes a monolith, but it's the 11th largest monolith in the world. Uh, kind of like Ayers Rock in uh, in Australia. And uh, the unique thing about this one is there's a crack uh, in one side of it. And the Colombians have built a wooden staircase all the way up to the very top of this rock. I think there's like 700 and some odd steps for you to climb up. Then there's a restaurant up on top for you to eat, sip coffee or whatever, and look over this beautiful reservoir that's down below, you know, with, uh, you know, little islands on it and stuff like that. And uh, it makes it makes for an interesting tourist attraction and an interesting, uh, very strenuous hike if you like that sort of stuff. It says uh, 740 steps go- going up. The pictures are stunning with it. I mean, th- this is just an incredible thing to see. I'm sure the pictures are incredible. I-, I was expecting. I saw a picture from the other side and I was expecting a sort of a gradual slope going up. But I was shocked to see you've got a full page photo in here showing the crack with the uh, the steps going up, and they are literally back and forth, just zig- zigzagging up through this crack to the top. I mean, mm-hmm. exactly right. Exactly right. I just looked it up here. And it looks like the rock at Watape is about 656 feet or about 200 meters. Oh, wow. Well, one thing that I wanted to say when, well, I wanted to say when you were talking about, you know, it, it's a pretty unique book and you, you hadn't seen anything like it. When Jeff and I were first uh, talking about constructing this, the book, I said, okay, Jeff, here's how I think this should flow. Okay. Let's pretend you're sitting in a bar having a beer and somebody walks in and says to you, hey, aren't you that guy that owns the motorcycle tour company? And you sit down and you have a four hour conversation with them as they question you about every single detail that you could probably possibly think about, about writing. I mean, uh, writing in Columbia. I said, let's make the book like that. The grammar doesn't have to be uh, correct. The sentence structure doesn't have to be sound real official. It just has to sound like, Hey, I just ran into a guy that's actually doing it and I want to know more. And so that was the style that we wrote this book in. It's, it, it, we, we've had feedbacks from other writers and they say it's super readable. And I feel like we already know you as friends because we wrote it in that style. Yeah. It's just talking with a friend is the style of uh, writing in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you accomplished that for sure. Even the way you bring you, the, the reader into it, just explaining about Columbia and then sort of getting more technical as you go to there. And you sort of cover off most of the questions I think that, that people have, or at least give them somewhere to go with stuff. So um, yeah, I think that's uh, it was well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, it was it was designed to give the person who's been thinking about it, but they've got some reservations that's kind of been holding them back. And we wanted to sort of kind of give it all out there so they have the confidence to make the next step. Well, and of course, that's why I'm asking you at the start when we first started talking about the whole reputation of Columbia, the drug lords and and, and FARC and, and all that sort of stuff, because. As, as I think it was Alan that said that, um, you know, because of that, it's sort of made it this, this untouched, pristine type of place, at least um, not, you know, totally uh, uh, overdone with, with tourists going in. Right now is the time to get in and explore Colombia. Yeah, get in, get in on the ground floor before, you know, the McDonald's come and, and so forth. And before uh, that donkey's replaced with a skitter. Right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's really funny, you know, sometimes uh, we were in some towns and, you know, we, a guy comes in on a donkey with a bunch of vegetables to sell. And, and you're like, you know, where do you live? And he's like, oh, I live 45 miles from here. Do you have a car? No, this is, this is my car. That's it. That's, that's <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, and that was one of the other things that I came across that you said was about the number of vehicles that most people don't have vehicles, which means that you're, you're not seeing an awful lot of vehicles, I guess, out of the major centers. Yeah. Once you get outside of the major centers, uh, the amount of vehicles on the roadway is very, very low. Um, and, 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 and much, probably the majority of vehicles that you do see are, are motorcycles. Um, there's a strange piece of history. I don't know all the details, but somewhere back in history, 
the president uh, signed into some law, making it much, much easier for the populace to have motorcycles and made it free on every toll road in the country. Motorcycles have a special lane that's free to, to encourage mobility at the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the prices that people could afford. And so this country has 9 million motorcycles registered, maybe 10 by now. Wow. So motorcycling in this country uh, the, 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 the level of it compared to any other Latin American country that I've ever been in, uh, far, far exceeds, uh, what you'll find anywhere else in Latin America. But you, you guys mentioned about small bikes and, and I think you already said that as well about small bikes are sort of best suited for this type of riding, for the riding these type of roads. Um, I guess in the condition of the roads, et cetera. But then you went and mentioned about a DR650. Are you considering the DR650 a small bike? Um, CC wise in this country, they consider that a very large bike, but it's pretty, it's pretty very basic bike. It doesn't weigh a lot because it's air cooled. It just doesn't have all the gear on it. Um, so in this country, yeah, it's a big bike, but as far as weight wise, it's a small bike. Uh, most of what we rent here are 300 CC Hondas and which are a little bit lighter than the DR650, uh, and is really optimal for some of the tough terrain that's a little bit steep and maybe you drop the bike a few times and and you can you can pick it up something i wanted to add to that is a lot of people in europe they're used to riding a bmw 1250 or a, a great big giant adventure bike so when they see 300 they think wow that's not even gonna get me around but once you get riding out here you will quickly find that the the smaller lightweight 300 cc bike is exactly the bike that you want to have out here. It makes it easier. You're saying for picking up that that's obvious. That's the obvious one, but what other things do you find the smaller bike is better for? Just, just maneuvering in general. No, I mean the, the speeds that we drive out here through the mountains, I mean, we'll really rarely break 60 kilometers an hour. Maybe we won't really go over 35 miles an hour. Right. So there's, so there's no reason for the, the, the 1200, for instance. Right. You don't need all that horsepower and stuff like that. And, uh, you just want something that's easy to maneuver and lightweight. And Alan probably has a few other things to say about that. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of the of the backpacker uh, backpacking world, you know, where they go way out in the in the backcountry. But lightweight is the you know, is the key and uh, trimming down all the equipment that you want for your adventure, trimming it down to the minimum. Uh, you'll find yourself uh, having a much more enjoyable time uh, with with a minimum in this terrain. The Honda that you have, is that a bike that's not available in North America? That's correct. Right, right. So the 300, and, but it's is is it something that's found all over in Colombia as far as parts yeah. wise? Yeah, all over, uh, all over South America, uh, it, it's found. It's actually built in a factory in Brazil. Right. And the DR650, you have that as well for rentals? Correct. Yeah, the DR650 um, used to be... Con- they had an assembly plant here, but it's the Japanese uh, Suzuki uh, 650. Um, uh, we have a few of them right now, and we're looking to uh, increase the the uh, number in the fleet uh, soon. We also have uh, Kawasaki Versus motorcycles, and that has a little bit lower of a seat height. So if there's uh, you know somebody who's shorter, they can uh, they can use that bike as right. well. The Versus is, that's a nice bike. Is that a 300 as well? Yes, that's a twin cylinder 300 cc. Right. And you guys are, um, the company is, is called what? It's called Columbia Moto Adventures. And what do you do there? Well, I'm the owner of the company. No, so, <laughs> I don't mean what do you actually physically, I mean, what, is, what does the company do? So you're doing rentals, what else? Right, we do uh, rentals. You can rent for a day, you can rent for a week, rent for a month. And then we also do fully guided tours. Mm, wow. It's a great way for someone to sort of dip their toes in, I think, as, as Ellen was saying, you know, if you're interested in exploring South America, to show up and, and instead of having to worry about all the things of buying the bike and or, or messing around with trying to import your bike, all those things, like you're saying, just just sort of dip your toe in, test it. Um, as I'm looking through this, I'm thinking, geez, it'd be worth just jumping on and doing a tour to sort of get a feel for things, particularly if you're not familiar with South America. Right. What we... What we do is we make it hassle-free, and it's kind of like fly and ride, I like to say. So if you come in, you don't need to have any of your own gear. We provide helmets. We provide jackets, gloves, knee protection. We provide the bike. The bikes have top boxes. We have dry bags. We have pretty much everything that you need to have an awesome adventure in Colombia. 
and it's all included in the rental price. So there's none of this, uh, you know, hassling or bargaining. Oh, I'm going to charge you $2 for knee pads. I'm going to charge you a dollar per day for a glove. No, it's all one price. You come in here, I'll hook you up and you can go on an awesome tour. You can go for a day. You can go for, you know, seven days. We can take you out for a day and ride around the back country. Our office is located in a place called the Switzerland of Columbia, and it's incredibly beautiful. And that's why I was talking about where I rode through this morning. It's just insane. Just, I can't even describe it. Just so beautiful. The fog going through the mountains and the greenery out there. It's, it's nice. One of the other advantages I, I thought of while I'm looking at this is that uh, if I'm renting from you, at least I have a contact right off the bat. I don't have to go and find something organically. I've got a contact. I have a problem. I'm calling you. Exactly. So here's the deal with that. My business technically is about renting motorcycles, right? You come in, you want a bike, boom, I give you the bike. But but actually my business is about helping people. And when people come in, I'm pretty much the only person they know. So and I and I like helping people. So you know, I want to, I just want to do my best. I want to be your friend. I want to help you out. I want you out of a great trip. And if there's any problem with anything, or even if there's not a problem, you know, you call me anytime and I'll help you out. And my crew, you know, my employees, they're extremely nice people. And we're always willing to help you out 24 seven. Is there anything else that we should know about Columbia? The only danger is wanting to stay. I like that. I like that. Jeff Allen, great to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Great book. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank Thank you you. for having us. That was Jeff Kramer and Alan Churchill in Columbia. Jeff's company is called Columbia Moto Adventures, which is ColumbiaMotoAdventures.com. Of course, that link is in the show notes. Uh, The book that Jeff and Alan wrote is called Jeff and Alan's Guide to Motorcycle Travel in Columbia. We've also got a photo of the book and uh, and the links, etc., all in the show notes on our website at AdventureRiderRadio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Now, don't forget, we have another show called ARR Raw. It comes out once a month. You need to subscribe separately for that, and like Adventure Rider Radio, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. And if you haven't done it already, we would love to get a five-star review from you on iTunes or wherever it is you find your podcasts. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name's Jim Martin. Thank you very much for being a part of this. I'll talk to you next week. This is Chris Lietz of Lier Corporation and you listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 